0: Hello, and welcome to the SSP Weekly Podcast, where we dissect security and foreign policy stories from this week, and we talk about life in DC. We are your hosts,
1: Gareth Smythe.
0: And Miriam Pasternak.
1: We are the directors of the Georgetown University Precision Guided Podcast.
0: And we are very excited that you tuned in today. Good morning, Gareth.
1: Miriam, good morning.
0: Welcome back after the Thanksgiving break to the weekly episode eight.
1: I can't believe it's been two weeks since we uh, joined together on this podcast.
0: I know. I know. We're going to have to get back into the rhythm.
1: Well, in the spirit of journalism, I have a hard-hitting question for you, Miriam. Is the Precision Guided Podcast in your Spotify wrapped? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Luckily I listen to Apple Podcasts so Me too no I way. actually
0: listen to it on oh. Apple Podcasts So it okay. wouldn't be on my Spotify wrapped What is on your Spotify wrapped if you had to guess?
1: If I had to guess I would say some Jackson Brown oh. for, the, uh, for the more uh, contemplative days mm. um, You
0: had to get that word from somewhere in the Deep your-
1: in the recesses of my <laughs> mind And then a lot of Aretha Franklin and Dinah Washington for the mm. happier days. So that'd be my guess. Yeah. Mm,
0: mm. yeah. I mean, I, I was pretty happy with my rap. Okay. I was, I, was, I was happy enough that I'll accept it, but I won't. I won't speak publicly on it.
1: <laughs> well, luckily, we're recording a <laughs> podcast right now. All I'm saying is I'm glad I have Apple Music and Apple Podcasts.
0: <laughs> Me too.
1: But thank you to the folks at Spotify for allowing us to host our podcast on your <laughs> platform
0: this introduction is a it's a mess but welcome back it's in the
1: spirit of the holidays in
0: the spirit of the holidays because it is december that's hard to believe i know so a lot of course has been happening in the thanksgiving break Mm. and while there were a lot of topics we could cover this week among others of course the ongoing israel hamas conflict and the now current ceasefire this week we're focusing on something slightly different, but certainly not less important. Gareth, what is it we are discussing this week?
1: Well, Miriam, I wanted to check back in on the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the world has been understandably focused on the issues that are happening in the Middle East. But as that's been going on, there's been a lot of developments in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict. Yeah. And so I wanted to check in with Aryan Van Tongelo, who is the GSSR's associate editor for Europe and Central Asia, Mm -hmm. to catch up on the war in Ukraine. It's a really interesting episode. We cover the current state of the Russian tactics, the Ukrainian tactics, the Western equipment or lack thereof, and the effect that that's having on on the conflict. We also talk about, and this is really why I wanted to seek out Aryan's perspective, was we talk about the recent elections in the Netherlands Mm -hmm. and how the uh, securing of a majority of seats from the far-right populist party, what are the implications of that on uh, potential Dutch aid to Ukraine or kind of overall broader EU aid to Ukraine? So it's a really fascinating discussion about the electoral implications.
0: Right. No, that is really fascinating and interesting right now. I think it came as quite a shock. I know reading a lot of European news outlets, um, the success and the victory of Geert Wilders, so I'm really, Geert Wilders, um, of course, being the the victor of the election, especially following some, some of the other European elections that have been happening these last few weeks and that we've also covered on the podcast, including the, the Polish election, so um, I'll be very interested to hear what Arjen has to, to say about that, both for the Netherlands, but also... For the Ukraine conflict and its importance in Europe.
1: Well, and I, for one, was surprised about how much play the results of the Dutch elections received in the United States. This is not now. a country that uh, really focuses a lot on um, international elections. Uh, and, and yet the way that it was covered was very similar to the way that the French elections a couple of years ago were covered. Um, what do you mean? I mean, I received probably 15 news alerts about the results of the election mm-hmm. uh, and it was also covered on several of the major news programs that are in the country on the television. And so I was surprised that the election received that much coverage in the US. Sure, yeah. But one thing that was not necessarily in the headlines of that election was the need for the far-right populist party that was elected. To have to form a coalition yeah and so one really interesting thing that Aryan does and as only a person from that country could do with mm-hmm. with the texture that he provides is he speculates about what policy platforms that party's going to have to moderate in order to form a coalition and as you'll see from our discussion one of the things he thinks that they'll moderate is their stance on not providing aid to Ukraine which was very interesting to hear
0: for sure, sometimes in the U.S., um, especially European elections are covered as if there is one definitive winner, as there would be in the U.S. Uh, yeah. after winning a primary, right? And so, just as as we discussed in the in the episode about the Polish elections, just because Donald Tusk is the victor of the election doesn't mean that he's going to be prime minister. It also doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to get all his all his policies through. So, coalitions are. Uh, the second round of what's interesting in European elections.
1: Absolutely. That's well put. Um, another thing that Ariane and I talk about is the is the stances that Ukraine and Russia have taken mm. on the Israel-Hamas conflict. Yeah. And he kind of ties that to some triangulation that both uh, Ukraine and Russia have had to do in their public statements about that conflict in the Middle East. So a, a really interesting conversation that covers a, a, across the spectrum of, of the discussion.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. No. Let's uh, let's jump into the conversation, shall we?
1: Fantastic. Well, Arian, it is great to have you on
2: SSP Weekly. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be on.
1: Well, Arian, you are the associate editor for Europe and Central Asia at the Georgetown Security Studies Review, correct? Yes. Yes. That's right. So tell our listeners a little bit about what that entails.
2: So I have been the associate editor since January, and I basically focus on all articles that have to do with Europe or Central Asia. Mm. And for this past year, that has basically all focused on Mm. Russia, Ukraine, um, Russian foreign policy, and such. So that has been one of the areas that we have heavily focused on this past year.
1: I was going to say, it's a it's been a busy uh, couple of years for your desk over at at GSSR. Um, So obviously, this podcast, as well as kind of any other security publication in D.C., has been rightly focused on the conflict between Israel and Hamas happening in the Middle East. But of course, as you noted, uh, this conflict between uh, Ukraine and Russia, which is extending into its 22nd month of full scale Russian invasion. this is gone on in the background and there's actually been some very significant developments uh, both on the Russian and on the Ukrainian side in the interim while we've been focused on Israel. Is that correct? Yes.
2: Yes. Oh, that is certainly correct.
1: So give us just kind of an overall uh, status update on the war. What do the sides look like now and and really what has changed since October 7th?
2: So this past summer in June, Ukraine started their big counteroffensive, which I will say has somewhat stalled mm. right now ukraine has regained about 54 percent of all the area that it lost since the start of the war but a lot of that area was before the start of this big offensive there is this figure i think it's by the economist where it basically shows that the uh s- service area that russia has within Ukraine right now basically is like flatline at roughly 18 percent. So there hasn't been a lot of progress as of late. On the other hand it has to be said that over the past few weeks there has been somewhat of a big breakthrough for Ukraine along the eastern side of the Dnieper river. It's functioned as a physical border between the Ukrainian side on the west and the Russian side on the east but recently there has been some progress there where Ukraine has been able to head into the eastern side of the river. Um, so there are some hopes there that Ukraine may be able to advance, but it has to be said that we are heading towards winter and <laughs> history has shown us that fighting the Russians in the winter is not an easy task by by any means. Um, so it has to be seen how that will go. Other that it has really sort of turned into a stalemate russia has been able to really fortify its defenses Mm. while ukraine had to wait for their equipment to be sent Um, so there there is somewhat of a stalemate at at this point in time
1: interesting and and when you say equipment obviously you're referring to the aid that has been sent from western countries yeah interesting so let's talk a little bit about Russia's tactics since this Ukrainian offensive that you marked the start of it being in June. You said that obviously they've been able to fortify positions.
2: Russia really settled down in the eastern area which is at the same time also one of the bigger areas for Ukraine's grain production so there may be some sort of an overlap there but Russia right now really has an incentive to turn this into a stalemate and really to draw out this war they are hoping and to some extent already seeing that the support from the west isn't the same as it was earlier on in terms of you know aid. that's being sent even just what's being said by certain politicians and at the same time they are also hoping to see what happens next november in the u.s elections and seeing where it goes from there at the same time one thing russia has really been doing um, especially over these past few months is sending the front strikes on Ukrainian port infrastructure to try to disrupt the grain exports. Those are sort of the big things that Russia is doing right now.
1: So you mentioned that their incentive right now is to create a stalemate to kind of draw out the conflict, recognizing that they probably figure that they have an advantage in what, manpower resources? What, what's driving this incentive for them to, to prolong that? Not in reference to their prediction of future aid, but just like pure manpower and equipment.
2: Um, so one of the big advantages that Russia has is they are a vaster state. So mm-hmm. they are able to you know, send out more manpower. They're also receiving aid from countries you had to deal with North Korea. I think it was last month now or earlier this month. Sometimes people think that they are in a position where they will have to eventually stop because of all the sanctions and such. But so far, they have been pretty good at sustaining. And I noticed yesterday
1: that uh, the uh, President Putin signed a new defense appropriation bill, which significantly increases Russia's defense spending. So the Russians have a long history of overstating military spending and what that means for capability, but obviously it's meant as a signal, if anything, that their political will remains strong to continue the conflict. You'd mentioned that Russia is fortifying its positions, particularly in the East. What's your assessment of their offensive
2: capability, or are they just focusing on the defense and kind of an attrition war right now? Russia has made some attempts at also being on the offensive. You can say, you know, that the best defense is always offense, but really the main Russian strikes have been with their the de- So yeah, that's that's been the biggest aspect of their offensive.
1: And these drone strikes that you mentioned, which obviously is kind of an asymmetric advantage, right? Like they can get these cheaply made drones from Iran, and they can target uh, from the sky, right, given the fact that no side really has air superiority. Are these drone strikes that Russia is doing primarily focused on civilian On military capabilities within Ukraine,
2: to some extent, it has been focused on the civilian infrastructure, um, just because of that port infrastructure. That is certainly not to say that they are not also striking military targets. They certainly are, but one of their big offensive strategies has been to focus on these ports in in southern Ukraine. Now that we've covered
1: uh, Russia, Arion, I'm hoping you can. Uh, educate us on Ukraine's tactics in the war. you would mentioned that they've been on the offensive since June. You've mentioned that that offensive seems to be stalling. Obviously, they've met significant Russian defenses, um, their uh, achievements in the Dnieper River notwithstanding. So talk to us a little little bit about what those tactics look like.
2: Yes. So one of the things I think is really showing here Are some of the words put out by Ukraine's commander-in-chief he has said that to some extent this is almost seemingly like the first world war in the sense that the level of tech has put it into a stalemate Um, each side now has advanced tech after the US and Europe supplied Ukraine with more advanced tech such as the tanks so for Ukraine, the big thing is for them to be able to get that extra tech. This is where Ukraine really is trying to find something similar to what the US would call an offset strategy, uh, which is basically if you are dealing with an enemy that is superior in terms of the manpower, you have to find some sort of other advantage to offset that superiority. So Ukraine's commander in chief has called for extra high-tech defense, air power, electronic warfare, such as signal jammers, to offset the massive Russian airstrikes, uh, the drone strikes, and also mind breaking tech. Because while Ukraine was waiting for the material that they got, Russia was able to fortify their defenses and. Lay out these vast landmine areas, which has been a real, real hindrance in terms of Ukraine being able to recapture some of its territory. So getting these more advanced tools is one of the big aspects that they will need in order to make further progress and really go back on the real offensive. Well, and it's really interesting that you characterize their strategy
1: as an offset strategy, because obviously to American force planners whose first and second offset <laughs> strategies in the 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, was also oriented against a Russia that seemed to have a conventional superiority in terms of uh, manpower and um, a and number of armored units. So it's really interesting that you characterize that as an offset. I'd like to now shift, Ari, into talking a little bit about the status of the support that Ukraine is getting from its partners. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion here in the United States about the role of the conflict in Israel and the potential for that conflict to take away from providing Ukraine the aid that it needs. Obviously, Congress has struggled passing aid for Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan in the context of a deal needing to happen between the Republicans and the Democrats on certain domestic Mm -hmm. priorities but what do you think the role of the Israel conflict has had in the Ukrainian offensive or in the war in in general?
2: I think it has had a bigger impact than is sometimes uh, seen Hmm. in in the mainstream media. So the one aspect of it, of course, as you said, is the funding aspect. The second aspect is really the support for Ukraine. Um, Ukraine sees that it needs the u.s support but at the same time it also understands that in order for this war to end it will also need support to some extent of non-western states so while ukraine was very fast to condemn the terrorist attack that happened on october 7th they haven't really spoken out as to the israeli response do that as much um, they are really trying to carefully gauge what they can do in order to not give certain u.s senators certain u.s politicians ammo to reduce support for ukraine at the same time ukraine has tried to increase its ties with certain non-western states because one of the big things that has been on in terms of the Russia-Ukraine war is how a lot of non-Western states have not really condemned this war to the same extent within the UN and such as Western states have. Um, but they, they understand in order to end this war, they will need that support to some extent. So they cannot vocally speak out against the situation happening between um, Israel and Palestine right now in order to maintain <laughs> US support. But at the same time, they also can't be silent on it in order to not break these ties that they are trying to set up with non-Western states.
1: Interesting. That's a very complex. You know, it's it it goes along with this conception of modern war as being a, you know, the battlefield is across domains, and one of these domains is kind of the political informational sense. On the flip side of that, how has Russia's response to Israel and Hamas? been characterized by their ongoing um, military aggression in in Ukraine.
2: So the Russian aspect of it is is also certainly interesting. Um, I mean, it it, it is similar to the Ukrainian side of it, where what they say and do via via um, Israel or Palestine will also impact the support that they are getting right. So you sort of just almost can flip it. In terms of what Ukraine is doing, not to vocally oppose either side in order to also not lose the support from their partners. So it, it it really is just both sides, Russia and Ukraine, having to see what can we say here, what can we do here, in order to not lose our support for our own cause, our own war.
1: Well, and just to further flesh out those dynamics, much as you indicated with Ukraine um, wanting to maintain... The United States is good graces. Obviously, Russia has relied a lot on Iran for particularly those cheap drones that we spoke about earlier. Obviously, Hamas is a proxy of Iran. And so you can um, guess that there's some triangulation on the Russian side with regard to Iran's position on the conflict. Uh, It was interesting in a previous episode of this podcast, Miriam and I talked about the bet that Israel had made with Russia and China and how that bet seems to have been misplaced given the Russian and the Chinese reaction uh, to the conflict. So it's interesting that you bring up those dynamics now. Your expertise, both within GSSR, but also personally, uh, is with uh, Europe and the European continent. And there was a a pretty impactful election that got a lot of play here in the United States with the implication, right? The election of kind of a far-right populist party with, I think, the majority of the seats in parliament although they still need to form a government in in coalition with another party. But can you talk us through what the implications are of the Dutch election for potential European support for Ukraine or kind of orientation on the war?
2: So the big victor was the PVV party, the party for freedom, uh, which is a more right wing populist party uh, speaking out against the EU. The PVV winning is definitely not good in terms of European support for Ukraine in their sort of party outline one of the things that they did actually Briefly speak on Ukraine and they basically try to separate national security from what's happening in this war So they are vocally opposing sending extra aid now the second side of this is that it will not be easy for them right now to form this majority coalition they did come out as the victor um, they got roughly 25% of the vote so I think they gained 38 out of 150 seats in the parliament which means they will need to get up to at least 75 seats with other parties in order to gain this majority Um the VVD party the party of the departing PM Rutte has stated that they will not work with them in a coalition. So it will be very hard for the PVV to form it. And if they are able to, they will probably need to moderate their stance on some of their rhetoric, such as leaving the EU, um, reducing support for Ukraine. So it will be hard for them to stick to really be a um, hardliner on these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, I almost want to draw a comparison to, to other European situations where something similar happened this year. In Spain, you had it happen where a more right-wing party won, right? But they were unable to form a majority. And basically a left-wing party stepped in and filled that void and was able to form a coalition. A similar thing happened in Poland this year. while. You know, it was celebrated as a big victory for the left. The party that was the biggest was still the right-wing party that has been ruling for the past eight or so years. But because these other more moderate, more left-wing parties were able to gain a majority, they were able to form a cabinet. So I am not saying that something similar will happen for us because there isn't really any way or any viable way to form like a really left-wing majority the PVV will probably have to step down on some of its stances if they want to to rule.
1: And do you think that Ukraine is one of those stances that they're gonna have to moderate?
2: That, that probably will be. Um, so I feel like Ukraine is one of the easier ones for them to moderate on because the big forum they ran on is migration. The reason our previous cabinet fell in The summer was because they were unable to figure out a real concrete policy on migration. And the PVV was able to sort of step in, run already on a somewhat more moderate platform than they would otherwise do. So they are more likely to fixate on these bigger national issues and then reduce their stance on issues such as A2, Ukraine.
1: And what do you think is the reaction in some of the bigger European Union member capitals to this Dutch election? You know, I'm thinking Germany, I'm thinking France. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how have they assessed what it means potentially and, and what the effect on Ukraine might be?
2: I actually sort of want to touch upon some of the um, other states that maybe more agree with with the victor of this election. Good. Specifically, one of the European leaders that spoke up. For this and saw this as a victory was the leader of Hungary, Viktor Orban, which ties back into the Ukraine piece. He's one of the leaders that is now vocalizing that he may want to stop extra aid going to Ukraine or basically stop Ukrainian ascension into the EU. So While on the one hand, certain European states, European leaders certainly won't be happy with this outcome. Think of France, where for the past two or three cycles, the person that has been the biggest opponent of Macron has been a more right-wing populist, Marie Le Pen. It is more so these other states, these other more right-wing politicians that may be able to gain from this.
1: So you mentioned uh, Ukrainian ascension to the EU. And I know that that was a big thing that the kind of EU leadership was positing as a political show of support for Ukraine. What do you give as the chances for, for that happening? Uh, and is there a kind of a, a time frame on how you rate those chances?
2: Personally, I do not see it happening anytime soon while the eu has previously voiced its aim to sort of speed this up it will be very hard for it to happen in the short term there are states that have been waiting on this for over a decade the statement that was put out on i think it was november 8th for ukraine and at the same time moldova to open a sentient talks so now is the start of the uh, sanction talks but there are a few things to take into consideration when you are thinking of potential ukraine ascension into the eu one of the big things that i always think about which is not very well known is that the eu sort of has its own article 5 clause. it is article 42.7 of the eu 3d states that if one state is under attack or gets attacked other states are almost obligated to support it so i am not a lawyer so i am not sure if there's any way this can be different if a state gets into the EU that's already in a war but there is a chance that based on article 42.7 if Ukraine does join the EU that all of a sudden all of these EU states are also somewhat in a war with Russia. There are a few other issues that would come into play in terms of finances, funding. First would be the funding issues if Ukraine does join the EU and did this war ends, where do you get the finances to support this reconstruction? Of course, Europe and the EU will already be heavily involved in this, even if Ukraine does not join the EU, but this would basically force them to reallocate some of the finances that would otherwise have gone to some other EU state. This would probably not be a very popular decision among certain EU states, primarily in Eastern Europe which is where there already are some issues, some tensions between Ukraine and Slovakia, Poland and so For the past three or so weeks there has been a Ukrainian border blockade by Polish truckers. Basically because right now Ukraine is able to ship certain goods that are a lot cheaper than they would be if they were produced in certain EU countries, which is hurting the suppliers within states such as Poland. So if Ukraine does become an EU member, how does that work? The last one that I tend to think of is what Does this mean 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? We've seen with Poland, with Hungary, that a right-wing government, a leader that may not be as pro-EU as some others can severely hamper the the EU in terms of security, defense, where basically each state can veto EU policy. Um, While right now Ukraine is, of course, very pro-EU, pro-Western, we have seen before this certain Ukrainian presidents that have been more Russia-leading. So if they do become a member, what does that potentially do further down the line if you get a president that isn't as pro EU, pro Western than it is now?
1: Arjen, you've covered Hungary's opposition to the ascension of Ukraine to the EU. Are there any states that have been particularly
2: notable in backing the accession and saying we want this to happen? So, so far it seems as if the largest push is coming from the EU itself Hmm. Um, the basically recommendation that was made earlier this month that ascension talks can start came from the European Commission which is how it's supposed to go procedurally but EU leadership such as Ursula von der Leyen have been the most vocal in terms of supporting a potential EU ascension for Ukraine. Interesting. And what do you think the dynamics of that are? Should we read into the fact that there's been
1: no kind of national call for uh, Ukraine to join from, from other nations?
2: I mean, there there certainly are some states that support it more than others, which you will have with any big EU issue just because there are 27 states and each state has their own interests. The states that will likely have the biggest opposition to this are these states that would probably lose some of their own funding, which would have to go to Ukraine if it joins, so it is these states that will probably end up having the biggest vocal opposition to a EU ascension for. Ukraine.
1: And for those of us that not necessarily steeped in the political dynamics of of EU rules and regulations, can one nation, can one member state of the EU veto the ascension of another? Is it like a NATO rule by consensus or is there kind of a a counting votes dynamic to this?
2: Yes, that is an option. Um, So in order for a state to become an EU member, it first has to have the entire European Parliament vote on it. But then at the same time, each EU state is able to veto it. So this is also where the Hungary piece comes into play, where they can potentially veto it even if all other states want Ukraine to join.
1: That's really interesting and I think speaks to your concern about the dynamic between some of these Eastern European states and and Ukraine's accession. Well, Aryan, you have uh, educated our listeners immensely, not only about the status of a very, very important conflict for global security, but also on some of the finer points on European uh, politics and the dynamics between some of the recent elections in Europe. So thank you so much for your time and your expertise.
2: Thank you.
0: such an interesting conversation i loved the way arjun both ties the implications of the dutch election to european politics and also the ongoing war with israel hamas and of course ukraine one thing that i found especially interesting was his thoughts on the war being using offset tactics
1: oh yeah the offset strategy that ukraine is pursuing right
0: yeah What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, I I thought it was, you know, as someone that's steeped in kind of, you know, American lore around Cold War force planning, I thought that the reference to an offset strategy was very interesting, right? The the U.S. in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was trying to come up with different strategies that were cost-effective to handle the Soviet Union and Mm -hmm. their supposed conventional superiority, you know, numerically. And, I mean, obviously that... Tactical problem is one being faced by Ukraine now right as As Aryan describes like Russia's incentive right now Is to just continue to throw Personnel equipment into their fortified positions to just hold them as long as they can, you know betting that the US elections might change their their being the ukrainians fade in terms of aid and so they're they're playing for time
0: Yeah,
1: and they have it seems the political will to do so right. I mean President Putin just signed that new appropriations bill, which increases defense yeah. on top of sanctions and other economic issues that, we, that seem to be happening in Russia. So I thought it was really clever to characterize it as an offset strategy, right? What, what technology or innovative solution can Ukraine come up with to negate that supposed conventional numerical advantage?
0: Yeah, I agree. I thought it was an interesting way to describe it. I haven't heard it described as an offset strategy before. Right. As we've discussed before on this podcast, you know, a real fear is is fatigue of the Ukraine war within many nations, including the US, of course. And so describing it in a different way than solely a stalemate that only Russia will continue to focus on might be a smart move in the rhetoric and the narrative surrounding the conflict. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been really concerned about the tenor of uh, President Zelensky's statements to the public. I mean, I I think that he is indicating that this is a really critical moment. Mm. And I think that we ignore that at our peril. I also thought it was interesting that Aryan covered the potential accession of Ukraine to the EU. Mm. Obviously, that was a huge kind of signaling political bone that the EU establishment had, had thrown their way. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate it as someone that's not necessarily steeped in some of these EU rules and regulations. Like, it was really interesting to hear Arjun talk about the barriers to entry that Ukraine faces with any EU ascension, including opposition from countries that have a veto like Hungary.
0: Yeah. What I really liked about the interview with Arjun was how this ties a lot of the conflicts that we've been discussing the last few weeks together. We want to say huge thanks to Arjun for. Uh, Providing such valuable insights um, from from the Dutch and European perspective of these of these conflicts,
1: and I think it you know it goes to show you that you know GSSR scholarship helps us uh, connect and understand the world. Uh, we want to wish all of our SSP listeners good luck on finals, and for our non SSP listeners, thanks for listening, and just be happy that you don't have finals anymore. <laughs> um, and uh,
0: happy December!
1: Happy December, everybody!
0: All right. Thank you, Garrett.
1: Thank you, Miriam.